Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I'm your host, Nicholas Krolak. Today's episode is brought to you by me. I've put in a lot of hours over the past couple of months in order to get this podcast up and running on less than a shoestring budget. With that in mind, I offer this disclaimer. The audio quality of the show is less than ideal. However, despite the low fidelity sound, high fidelity conversation with innovators of the current jazz scene can be found here. So as my teacher once told me, after I complained about a certain jazz legend's sound, you gotta listen past the tone, then you'll get to the ideas. So please bear with me on the sonic front. I'm working on it. In the meantime, if you or your organization would like to underwrite an episode, hit me up through my website, nicholaskrolak.com, or on Instagram, at nicholas underscore Krolak. I promise you the first investment I make will be in some proper recording equipment. My guest today is the man, Tim Warfield, legend. He's shared the stage with everyone from Donald Byrd to Marcus Miller to Christian McBride to Shirley Scott to Nicholas Payton, Charles Fambro, Terrell Stafford, Stefan Harris, Oren Evans, and that is the extremely abridged version. But what is most impressive to me is how he encourages, energizes, and leads the next generation. Our conversation was super inspiring as we jumped around from various topics, including fashion, conquering fear, dealing with the business of music, his unique take on ear training, as well as some nuggets of wisdom from a life spent among the masters. If you haven't checked out his work, I highly recommend his albums, Gentle Warrior, Jazzland, which is his most recent release, and my personal favorite, Spherical his deep dive into the work and genius of Thelonious Sphere Monk. Tim, thank you for your time. And I wanted to start off with the inspiration for this came from the last time we met up. Oh, wow. Okay. For a lesson, we got into a lot of things. We were talking about composition and the, the life of giving life to a composition afterward and it was just such a fun experience i was like i wish i could have shared that with everybody right yeah so i I kind of thought about it another thing you you brought up was how open the world is just like if you want something you can just go out and do it right so i was like why can't i just make a podcast why can't i just interview people and do it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you can. And then, yeah, exactly. And so I started putting pieces together, but I just wanted to thank you because the, the initial kernel uh-huh. happened right in this room oh, man. in the dungeon of Boyer's <laughs> Definitely the dungeon. We're in the dungeon. <laughs> so I wanted to start, before we get into like music, music, uh-huh. I, wanted, I actually wanted to talk a little bit of fashion because you're okay. a, a very fashionable very guy. Kind, thank you. Yeah. I was just curious, when did that start for you? Wow. The question is, is it was it a um, subliminal 
or was it conscious? I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll go with the conscious because yeah. then I, I can actually tell the story. So Liminal is yeah. very much guessing. My father started with my father, uh, watching my father who had a job where he wore suits and ties. I can kind of lean on the subliminal and kind of segue. It's not mm-hmm. a heavy thing. I remember when he would go to work, he would put these odd patterns and stuff together. Mm-hmm. And I would jump on him and hit him. That doesn't look right, Dad. That doesn't look right, Dad. And he's like, you don't know anything about this, boy. You don't know how to do this. And then he would explain what he was doing. Yeah. Like, it doesn't look right. And so we would go through this, you know, me messing with my dad, my dad messing with me. And then when I got to be, uh, when I got to middle school, I, I my voice went down to this, mm-hmm. this, this this decibel level. When I was ten, believe it or not, I started to head towards puberty a little early. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got to middle school, my father was giving me gentlemen's quarterly magazines. Uh, when it was much more of a gentleman's quarterly than that. It's kind mm-hmm. of they've kind of rebranded themselves and mm-hmm. kind of changed the idea, and so there were a lot of ideas about men's fashion, as well as literally being a gentleman, like mm-hmm. understanding grooming and all of these things, like the, you know the details of of, 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 of quality clothing, etc., etc., etc. Even even uh, listings of the, 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 the fine clothiers in, 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 in different areas of the of the country, mm-hmm. and so. I would read them just because he gave them to me and my dad gave them to me and I thought it was cool and I actually liked the content. And so I got involved. I think that kind of paralleled with going to some shopping centers with my mother Mm -hmm. uh, and him, but after a while it really started to be my mother as he worked more and didn't want to go all the time that actually had some of these stores and the fact that I, I had grown I was growing faster than probably some of my peers, so I was starting to wear men's clothing. And so they would allow me, my mom would, you know, if I went with her, she'd give me something and I'd be able to go out and pick some things. I just really, as you get more information about Mm -hmm. it, you just start to, I just started to like it. And I started to try to do the things that he did and the things that I saw. And there was also a model. This wasn't something that you saw a lot in the, now I'm telling my age, but in the 70s. This wasn't something you saw a lot. Like, you didn't see a lot of black models on covers. And there was one black model by the name of Renald White, who, he was just the coolest guy. Mm-hmm. Real masculine dude. But there was just an energy with whatever he put on, whatever the style mm-hmm. was. He, it was like he made, he brought life to the fashion that was being presented. And I really liked him. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I followed I started to kind of anything he had, anything I saw him in, I would buy. Like if it was a magazine or something, I would. Mm-hmm. Can I have some money? I wanna. I want this, right? Yeah. And I started reading articles on him. I actually ended up doing a report my junior year in high school on him and John Coltrane. They wanted to talk wow. about two people that I thought were influential for me, and I really liked. You know, Coltrane had this beautiful story, and he was clearly a, a, beyond a dynamic individual. As some people say, was Coltrane really a saxophone player or was it beyond? You know what I mean? So yeah. he was like that. And that was recognizable even as a kid. And so he and Ronald White were big influences. So I, 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 I started to kind of follow Ronald White. And that, that made me even more want to be deeply in, 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 into fashion. So 
I got old enough to shop on my own and I started to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I noticed the connection between music and fashion and yes. specifically with jazz. And you mentioned that Ronald White brought, brought life to the it, clo- yeah, to the, the clothing. clothing actually, yeah. And do you, do you feel that the clothing can help bring life to the, the music? To music? Absolutely. Yeah. So I didn't really address that, but you addressed it for me. There's absolutely, uh, there was absolutely a synergy between fashion and, yeah. and, 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 and particularly in the 70s. For me, visually, what I saw were a lot of dynamic, in my age, a lot of dynamic black men playing music mm-hmm. in suits, which just happened to be my interest, like that sort of a thing, yeah. that sort of elegance. Mm-hmm. So it's not about, like fashion can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. I was very interested in the elegant part of it, and yeah. I'm very interested in how that translates into music. Yeah. That's different than Vol as well. And so for me, that's what I saw on all of these old Blue Note covers and prestige, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, wow. And I'm playing the saxophone, you know, so it brings life into the music visually because then it becomes yeah. an idea of culture, absolutely. right? Yeah, absolutely. Which it was for sure. But the idea also comes from, if you, if you even remove music for the, from the equation or you, bring it in, or you bring it back into the equation, either way, it stands on its own. It reminded me of oh, another point I wanted to hear your thoughts on I had a teacher who's one of my first teachers mm-hmm. who made me wear a tuxedo to my first lesson he was wow. old school very old school he's like you have to have a tuxedo uh-huh and um he made me wear it I, you know I got a got like a secondhand tuxedo mm-hmm. and I wore it and I was kind of angry at the time. I was like, oh, oh why yeah, do I got to do this? you wear a tuxedo to a lesson. Yeah, yeah. that would make you angry. <laughs> but it, I felt like it got me in the right mindset, almost yeah. like an like a athlete putting on their cleats in the locker room right, kind right, of thing. Right, right, made you. He made you like, you're going to be a professional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. probably never forget that, you know? Right, right, right. It's definitely an attitude that's, 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 that's uh, projected as a result of uh, um, the visual... Um, you choose to um, have as a part of your presentation. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So there's a certain thing that I like. There's a certain thing I do. Whatever anybody else wants to do, go ahead, do it. Yeah. Like, I don't really freak out over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain thing I'd like if I'm asking you to play with me. Mm-hmm. If you're really adamant that you need to do your thing, for nine times out of ten, I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It looks strange. You know, and it doesn't really, it never looks strange on our part. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you have five people dressed up and one person not, you know what I mean? It's like, but, but, but nonetheless, uh, uh, I, I I want people to feel comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, a lot of times when people feel uncomfortable in clothing, you know, particularly dress clothing, it's because they don't know how to wear dress clothing. Mm -hmm. Like your clothes shouldn't be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like, I could wear a suit all day. Now, unless you're just someone that doesn't like your skin covered, that's a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. You like being naked. That's a whole other idea, you know what I mean? And I understand that. There are people that like that. It's like, ah, summertime, great. Yes. You know, but but a lot of it has to do with, you know, particularly men and the dynamic of of our culture currently. We don't really wear suits 
as much mm-hmm. anymore. We go down to church, funerals. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. like we just don't really do it much. Yeah. So because um, it's harder to be versed, the opportunity is not there. So you know, we'll end up wearing shirts that are too tight, or we'll pull our tie too tight. Mm-hmm. It's like don't pull the tie tight. You know what I mean? Don't make your knot tight. You know, pull your knot, make it shape, then pinch it, then pull it up. You know what I mean? It's just real simple things like that. You know, I know a lot of guys that like the way, they like the way fitted suits look. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they buy their suits too small. And you can see that the suit is a size too small because they're trying to get to that look, not realizing you have to buy something that's true to your silhouette and then have it tailored. Yeah. You know, just stuff like that. But I do, I do like for me specifically, because I'm, I'm, I'm digressing a bit, I do really, my whole thing really is about not the idea of fashion so much as the idea of the elegance of fashion. Yes. That's really important for me because that part is much more difficult to access and understand and translate than just an idea in fashion. Mm-hmm. Fashion almost parallels to the idea of trend. Mm-hmm. Those two words yeah. almost parallel today. It wasn't that way when I was younger, mm-hmm. but it's definitely that way now. The moment you started to have, uh, around the time, and I don't know what was going on in our, 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 the industry of business at that time, but around the time of the pet bra, which I honestly believe was an exercise or, or, or some sort of uh, uh, project to show that anything could be sold, like anything has value and that value is subjective. So around the time of the pet rock and the mood ring came designer jeans. And that's the very first time that sort of an idea on something so casual became a thing. And fashion changed after that. People really started being told like this is what's happening. Everybody's wearing black suits with French blue shirts. Everybody's wearing, you know, uh, uh, spectator shoes now or, or whatever it is you know now we're doing bow ties or whatever everybody's wearing you know skinny suits or, or whatever it is you know it, it, it changed and people just kind of started following hmm. whatever the ideas were which I also believe has translated into music hmm. which to me is an art killer yeah can you give an example of that no, I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go down that slippery fair enough, slope. Fair enough, fair enough. But I mean, I just say that I, I think there's enough examples on in social media yeah. um, of people just doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, are you going to play a symmetrical dominant lick on? I'm going to play a symmetrical dominant lick as well. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then it's done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like, you start seeing, and then that idea translates into music. Oh, they played this sort of a groove because you could hear, like, you can hear similar grooves and similar choices in, in instruments and similar choices. And it's like, this is what cats are doing now. It's like, when I hear any, like, within the idea of art, when you start to hear, this is what we're doing now, you, you know that you have one confused musician in front of you. Or who, speaking of, because, you know, they'll probably also speak about the idea, you know, their idea of music as being art. And I'm like, no, one person created this idea. One person created the idea, and the rest follow. It's always been that way. We didn't create it, so the question mm-hmm. is, who's we? Yeah. You know, there was only one real creator of bebop. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if we talk about other other uh, uh, genres of music, 
you'll see there are sounds that are equated to an individual or a band, but you can best believe that there's probably an individual in a band that introduced mm. the sound yeah. to the band. That's just the way that it goes. You have uh, uh, the leader and the followers. And, and in business, I think we've actually talked yeah, about this before. Absolutely. They're both okay. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. So I'm not, it's not really a criticism. It doesn't work for me in terms of like trying to actually deal with art, like trying to create art. But in the same sense, with an idea of business, it's 100% okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know why anybody would say, well, they did that, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You make money how we make money. Yeah. You know, I just had a conversation with a, uh, a former student. And we were talking about this, you know, where, you know, it's okay for, like, an idea, you might have an idea that if you look at it from the artistic side, it's not great. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it from the business side, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And there's a balance between business and the business of art. And we need to understand that when we're doing what we do, if we're trying to make a living at it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, if we're, if we're not trying to make a living at it, that's fine. So long as you have another way to make a living. You know? So, but I, I think that's important to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to pivot a little bit to an uh, area that is very interesting to me. A big motivating factor for me doing this podcast is I personally started music pretty late. So I don't really understand the experiences of, of people who experience high-level music at a young age. Mm-hmm. And um, I was reading through your bio, and you did some pretty notable things at young at a young age. I'm looking specifically at the, like the Monk competition and an album in 1991, Tough Young Tenors. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Was, was there a lot of pressure involved? That's a good question. It's a little difficult because I'm trying to remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, for me, I don't really think there was a lot of pressure. There definitely mm-hmm. was pressure because you want to do well. Yeah. But I think at that point, once you've been given an opportunity, because you have to wait. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying, you get no's, you're trying, and then all of a sudden it happens. Like, you know, for me, I went from vigilantly playing gigs every single weekend in a city uh, that was an hour and a half from where I lived and then during the week working a third shift job you know in a warehouse and at one at one point I was working a day gig too uh, on certain days during the week so I had like three days during the week I would do the day gig mm-hmm. at nighttime I would do the warehouse this is the part that's not in the bio when everybody's like oh he get, he was given this or he's like no they don't really understand what yeah. it takes to actually get all this to happen yeah. and I didn't necessarily know what I was doing but I knew I needed money I needed money for school but I didn't realize that at that time I didn't think about what I do as a business at all and so you don't realize that oh well all businesses need capital you know what mm-hmm. I mean so 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 um, I, I'm, I'm doing this thing and then I go from working in a warehouse one day to being a saxophone player for a trumpet player from New Orleans who got signed with Studio Sony Records mm-hmm. and so once that door opens and you've been really working hard towards getting it it's not as much pressure as, as it is application so for me it was, it was really about you know you're going to work hard but you knew what you had to do. 
and you did it well enough to get through. So that's what it was for me. You know, it was like, man, let's do this. Now, you know, playing with a bunch of ridiculous saxophone players like that, you have to figure out who you are in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to kind of figure out what game you're going to play. Are you going to be like, you know, are you going to be the provoker? You know, uh, are, are you going to be um, the quintessential side guy? Like, how, who do you become? I just made a decision, like, in most of it, do what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody's going to like it. Not everybody liked it before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just do it and keep on going. And so for me, that's really what it was. I just, I was, I had the opportunity. And for me, it was an issue of making it happen. And so that's what I try to do each time. And the way to do, to get that to happen is to practice a lot. Mm-hmm. Practice and pay attention and listen a lot. So I spent, tried to spend as much time as I could with people who had information uh, that I thought was uh, uh, beneficial for growth. Mm-hmm. Who were some of those people? I'm- Assuming one of them is is Shirley Scott. Of course, she's, <laughs> and, a, she's a really important person. And um, yeah. I would love to hear you know. But Mickey Roker, Mickey yeah. Roker used to tell us stories, man. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's the thing about it is to really understand. Like, you know, it's easy to, when you get an opportunity to know these people. You know, they like you and they know you, and you know, it's like, yeah, I know them, and so you kind of can get in this space that, yeah, we are, but no, we're not. It's Mickey Roker. <laughs> And then, yeah, you're there somewhere down below. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind thinking about it in that way because I believe in reverence. I believe that there's something very special in that. So I think that people, uh, um, sometimes the result of ego or just a lack of understanding, um, confuse reverence with idolatry. They're very, very different. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, uh, I... I very matter of factly having reverence is actually beneficial uh, and so um, I don't have any problems thinking of myself in that position next to Mickey Roker Absolutely. You know, but the thing for us, it's like for me was to, to be cognizant of when to really focus so I remember we asked some you know, we asked Mickey Roker some questions just like some pretty broad you know, yeah, you play with train. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And he starts talking about train. But when it got to the point where it's like, you know, he had that voice, he's like, Matt, let me tell you something about my life. I, I realized at that moment, it's time to really focus on what this man is about to say. Mm-hmm. We asked him a couple of questions about train, and it's just got heightened. Mm-hmm. So whatever comes next, you know what I mean? Really try to take it, and hopefully you, you'll be able to digest it in a way that'll be beneficial to you. So you know, I had a lot of people like that in my life because I got a lot of an opportunity to meet a lot of people through Shirley. Um, I knew people, and I lived in Washington D.C., mm-hmm. New York for such a short time it's not even worth talking about. Lived in, uh, 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 so I really like to say I visited New York, uh, which is technically maybe even more accurate. But I, I, I definitely. Uh, lived here in Philly and lived in Central PA and I met a lot of people through some through some key people and I got a chance to hang out with people usually through masters um, who had friends and they talk to you and you just sit and listen to them talk and you get a lot of information from that you know and so 
that was that was very important. So people like Mickey, and then some people that are lesser known, like I had a, a mentor of sorts uh, and a teacher of sorts by the name of Ronnie Waters, who's out of Harrisburg, PA, um, is actually going to be, he's done so much for youth that he's being given an, an arts award. I can't remember what organization is giving it to him, but that's going to happen in a couple of months. And, um, you know, he used to run off jargon to me that I didn't understand at the time, but mm -hmm. I knew he was trying to help me, you know. And uh, he would write out tunes for me. I remember I couldn't drive. He'd come to my house. He lived mm -hmm. in another city. He'd come to my house, pick me up, take me to a gig, and then drive me back home before he went home. Mm -hmm. It's like those sorts of things that you can't forget, you know. And I've had a lot of people like that. I got a chance to hang out with Donald Byrd, you know, talk to him a little bit. Uh, I got a chance to hang out with lots of people. Some of it was cooler than others, but mm -hmm. you know, uh, Freddie Hubbard, George Coleman, Betty Carter, um, who else? James Williams. I spent a lot of times with James Williams. He knew that uh, one of his really good friends was a hero of mine. So I think one of the opportunities to play with James Williams was the result of him understanding that a uh, tenor player who's now just retired from running the jazz program at Berkeley, Billy Pierce, mm -hmm. was a big, big, big not was, is a big hero of mine still. I just sent a message from someone. He get, Billy got an award at the Mid-Atlantic Jazz Festival and I told him, I hope he got the message. I said, tell Billy Pierce he's still my hero because you know, <laughs> he still is. You know, so I got a chance, you know, you get a chance to talk to these people. Johnny Cole, yeah. who's from here, got an opportunity to play in his group. And Charles Fambro, he laid a mm. lot of wisdom on me. Do you have anything specifically? I, um, I he gave me a harmony lesson, man. Yeah. That made me. I was like, okay, either today you're going to continue, because when I left, I was just done. I was like, either you're going to continue or you're going to quit today, mm. because this was so deep. I don't, not really sure what he was talking about. You know what I mean? It yeah, was, it, yeah, was yeah. it was pretty heavy, and he stopped. He's like, no, man, you're going. You stop laughing at me. Like, you're going to be fine. Because <laughs> I was yeah. like, man, I'm going to quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. And he was like, no, you're going to be fine. He just smiled, you know. But, you know, he just talked about music, you know, to talk about, you know, you get bandstand information, you get music, you get information about uh, music, things that are important, like I've talked about before for me. I think the value system has changed quite a bit in terms of what's important to jazz music. Mm -hmm. Though that doesn't change... The, what I would consider to be the real value system coming from the source to be it. Yeah. It just, all that really means is that the music changes. Mm -hmm. So if we complain about why there's no sustenance, why there are no people coming out to hear the music, and there were people coming out to hear it before, and there were, even in the 90s, mm -hmm. a lot of people in the 90s, then we know the reason why. You know what I mean? You change the value system because... For whatever reason, usually value systems are changed for uh, issues of revenue, um, you know, uh, com you know, commerce, or um, people do what they can do, not what they can't do. Like, I grew up working on stuff that I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. That was the stuff I wanted to do because I was told that that's what was important. And is it hard? It's still hard today. But I keep working towards those things. But 
I think more we we have a lot more of now people working on things that they can do, mm-hmm. and they enhance those things. Yeah. And again, from a business perspective, either is cool for me. From an artistic perspective, if we're going to say that this is jazz music, blah, 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 well, for me, a lot of things are questionable. But that's neither here nor there, because it's just my opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the end, which is why I don't spend a lot of time on it, I already know that 20, 30, 40 years from now will be the answer to mm-hmm. that question. You know, So I don't really worry about it or can spend any time concerning myself with it, really. I kind of, again... I think everybody should. I say, what do they say? Do you? Mm-hmm. And then you'll know. <laughs> yeah, you'll know at the end. So that's that's kind of how I focus. But you know, like learning a ballad, having a stamp, like having a having a ballad that you have put your DNA. Like it's like mm-hmm. to the point where people are like, look, they come and they ask you to play that ballad. Being able to play a ballad and make people cry, mm-hmm. that's very difficult to do. Or even just getting them to hug. That's still very diff. That's still very difficult to do. Like being able to play a blues, you know, practicing blues in every key, but being able to play a blues, like Vicky Roca would say, like one, one and a half, <laughs> two. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's like being able to play an adult tempo. You yeah. Know? Um, um, of course, being able to navigate through changes fluidly. That's always going to be. The challenge, yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean. But but just being able, to, but being able to do that, uh, being able to play, to tell a story, yeah, not which is different than navigating through changes. I think a lot of people can really navigate through changes really well, mm-hmm. like amazingly well. Yeah. I know young kids that can. Yes, but to be able to tell a story where it sounds where like what you say has a beginning, a middle, and an end, mm-hmm. to where you could get what you needed to say done in, in a chorus or two choruses. There's an art to that that I don't really think many people can do anymore because that's a practice, and we yeah. not, and we no longer have to do that. Yeah. Because there are no proving grounds or less proving grounds where someone says these are the things that are required, you know. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think those things are still important. Yeah. So I still uh, embrace those ideas, whether I choose to play long or short. Mm-hmm. I still have like the idea that that's what it's going to be. You yeah. Know? There's a um, a thing we touched on the last time we spoke that has been churning in my mind ever since. And it kind of goes along with this. Uh, I came up with like a, a bunch of questions to, uh, that I want to ask a lot of people because it really interests me. And actually the first idea I had actually wasn't a podcast. It was actually a written interview, very short interview, one question. Oh, wow. And the question was, how do you hear? And I was going to call it, how do you hear? It'd be a little segment. I pitched it to a, a little, uh, like a local magazine. Um, wow. They didn't want to do it. That's okay. Okay. So this is a cooler idea anyway. <laughs> so last time we talked, you talked about associating sounds with emotions. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, emotions through sound equation. Yeah. yeah. Could you give maybe like a, like a first step to doing that? like a way in for somebody. Well, I mean, first of all, the thing about it is, it's, it's, it's like, I don't want to digress too much. When I do this, sometimes I forget what the question is, but it's like moral values. You know, we give people excuses sometimes as a result of how they were brought up or the things that they've seen. And I'm not saying that, that, that those things aren't 
don't influence us greatly, right? Particularly if we actually have to deal with physical violence, uh, uh, either either witnessing it all the time or 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 actually experiencing it ourselves. Those things can change you mm-hmm. in a way that um, people shouldn't have to apologize for. We just have to figure out how to stop that sort of stuff from happening. But I always say, with a lot of people. Uh, they make excuses for I was like well did they ever watch cartoons like every cartoon has a protagonist and an antagonist and there's all you know the end is it's always about you have like two types of cartoons you have problem solving cartoons and then you have the other type where you have the good and the bad right Mm -hmm. and so if you there aren't really too many cartoons where the bad guy wins so we so we kind of have an understanding of what good and bad is, even from a very early age as a result of this experience. And all of us watch cartoons as kids a lot. Mm-hmm. So we have the same thing, because along with those visual images, mm-hmm. to help drive the idea home was ideas and sonority, mm-hmm. right? So there would never be major chords behind the evil person. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yes. You'd always hear minor chords, mm-hmm. right, or dissonant sounds. Gal, the gallant, the, 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 the you know the gallant person or the gallant uh, character would come in, then you would have hear more noble sounds like major or dominant. It would be, you know it would be mm-hmm. like these. So 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 I think fundamentally we already have had that experience. Mm-hmm. We might not necessarily know what's going on because mm-hmm. we're kind of immersed in whatever it is at that age. The best way to do it. For me, at least, like what I do with my students, this is like, okay, man, this is your training, but it's not, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do it a couple of ways. You know, if you can, if you can do it from, you can tell me what the root is, great, and tell me what the, what the, you know, the tone colors are. That's fantastic, mm-hmm. you know, numerically. But uh, if you can't, let's figure out a way to make it happen so that you can. So let's start with the most fundamental idea. Let's go all the way back to what I just described. Mm-hmm. What does this chord make you feel? Mm-hmm. All right? Let's close your eyes. So we'll start playing, you know, major chord, you know, sharp the five, augment it, right? Mm-hmm. Add the 13. Add the 13, sharp the 11. They're going to make you feel different things, right? They're just mm-hmm. different colors, you know. Um, uh, do the same thing with uh, minor chords what does that make you feel like come up with some actual visual visual image images like okay if you feels what like what okay give me an image like think about that mm-hmm. you know and if you can keep those once you come up see me, I have, me giving you an image is one thing yeah. conjuring an image is more mm-hmm. personal so to constantly do that throughout all the different chords you know it's like okay so this sort of mysterious crazy thing is a polychord right every time I play it you know it's a polychord Okay, a sus chord. That's the weird chord. It makes you feel weird, right? (laughs) (laughs) You feel like you're going up in the air. You feel like there's optimism, but there's a little weirdness to it too, right? Like it has a minor. Like what is that? Like, you know what I mean? So, so we kind of we kind of go through it in those in those terms. We also I also talk about it within the idea of degrees, you know, like emotional equation from a minor seventh to a ninth to an eleventh. You know, uh, I think the seventh is a, is a, is a, is a, is a really good, it's a, a 
creates like a foundation to the minor triad, right? Like it's like, oh wow, this is a really solid thing. But when you add the ninth, there's a certain sort of freedom you feel when when, when you add the nine, mm -hmm. right? Uh, an openness that you have. Uh, I, I like the eleventh because there's a nobility mm -hmm. in the eleventh that's not in the ninth. And the eleventh really makes you say, it says, listen to me. You know, it's a very dominant, powerful sort of a thing. So, you know, it's like sitting down with the details uh, uh, of, of harmony and trying to give them emotional equation makes it then easier to compose mm -hmm. when you start to put combinations of colors together. Mm -hmm. It starts to make logical sense. If you want to talk about how to create a release, right, mm -hmm. you know, from something as simple as a, a minor chord to a major chord or, or a, 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 a dominant, like a 13, uh, to a minor chord. You know what I mean? Just like, just the feelings that happen, or or even, like a the subtle difference between a thirteen chord and a sus chord. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, the colors that are created as a result of just putting those two combinations together mm -hmm. are really important. Right? Yeah. It gives a different meaning to the tritone. The tritone doesn't necessarily now have to be harsh. Yeah, it can be used in a way uh, where it's just a color, even a sensual color. Mm -hmm. you know? Just get, getting into into composition, um, do you have any any kind of routine for composing? This is the thing I'm kind of fascinated. Like, who has a routine? Who doesn't? Like, what I, what do different people I, do? I, I would say no. no I don't no. really have a routine for composing. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a learning experience. Mm -hmm. I don't really think that there should be uh, any any outside of listening to as much as yeah. I can listen to mm -hmm. for inspiration. Um, no, go to the piano and have a lot of hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh -huh. grab, grab an instrument and have a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. Sing a lot into your phone. Yeah. You know, and come to it much later, much later, mm -hmm. and then try to finish it. I mean, mm -hmm. that's pretty much my routine. Sometimes it works. A lot of times it does not. And then I, have, I just keep going back and keep going back. Yeah. Uh, um, um, the one thing I will say is playing at certain pianos, like a, a lot of it has to do with how clear is the piano, how much clarity does the piano yeah. have? Does it how how does it breathe for me? Mm -hmm. uh, um, that has a lot to do with it. And then I try to listen to, I try to find and listen to, uh, because this is another thing that I don't really hear a lot. I, I I try to listen to really strong, simple, logical melodies. Like the art of melody making is an art, and that's very difficult for people to do. People can write compositions like crazy. <laughs> but to write a melody, like to write a song, yeah. which is more money, <laughs> you know, it's more money and it's it's truer to the essence of who we are because that's where we started, mm -hmm. right? It's something about, you know, Thelonious Monk's songs are compositions, but they're songs. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I find so interesting about them. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, they're definitely songs. <laughs> you can walk right down the street and sing them for days. Sure are. So, so, so I, I, I try to find them and that's pretty easy to do now thanks to YouTube and mm -hmm. Amazon you know you find an artist that you really dig usually on the in the sidebar they have some things that are related to that mm -hmm. that'll take you on a journey if you have the time yeah you know for I mean? sure so um, you mentioned monk and um, I would pretty 
pretty sure my favorite album of yours is the oh, spherical oh, wow. album oh, wow. uh that really really got me man not only because it was all monk music but it was like deep cut monk tunes it was like not like your jam session tunes you know how did how did that album come about well there's a whole there's a there's a there's a really intricate story to it so first of all that band initially was Orrin Evans's band Mm -hmm. and there's a video if you look with us playing on it where we're talking about being in that band and I like to really look at it as a collaborative more than my group Mm -hmm. because I think the provocateur in the whole idea is Orrin Mm -hmm. beyond reasonable doubt though I think Eddie Henderson the masterful and that's another person who's Mm -hmm. a mentor and every time I spend time I love Eddie Henderson let me say it again Mm -hmm. I love (laughs) Eddie Henderson he gives me so much inspiration on so many levels and he's such a smart and kind man and like all of that comes through so genuinely and clearly in his playing Mm -hmm. that when he plays I feel like I know what to do next yeah it's like okay he's not only showed me how to do it I know what level I have to push for because I have to follow him Mm -hmm. you know what I mean and I think I'm going to, I'm willing to bet that everybody else feels the same way yeah. in the group. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to say that, but it's, it's Oren's body of sound and approach. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the piano player, they got the, they're in the hot seat and his whole idea about how to color that music was very interesting because clearly he's versed in monk to be able, like, mm-hmm. you can't manipulate as we are able to manipulate without being versed. Mm-hmm. And he's very versed in the idea. He spent some time and immersed himself in it. So I, I have to say that first. Um, but we were playing more tunes that everybody knew. Mm-hmm. And and so when it somehow kind of fell into my lap, first of all, I couldn't do that because I'd already done that with Orrin. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, talking about information that's being shared, one of the things that Shirley Scott had told Terrell Stafford and I long ago was that she said there are a lot there's a lot of beautiful music out here mm-hmm. you have composers that have written a lot of music there's a tendency for people to play the same tunes some of this this is kind of coming full circle in terms of like what we're talking about is industry driven yeah. and commerce mm-hmm. it's like we'll if you play body and soul we know certain people are going to buy the record because you do body and soul mm-hmm. but again I believe in doing you. <laughs> yeah. So she gave me some information that I thought was very important. So it's, I'll learn some of those tunes, but I also want to find out what else is out there. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, you know what, let's see what else he's done that I think might be more sympathetical to the concept that we play. Mm-hmm. And I was able to find a couple of things that were obscure. And I was able to find some things that I thought lent itself to a lot of creativity, you know, uh, to an opportunity for creativity in the way that we were, uh, uh, the body of sound that was being created and how we were improvising and interacting with each other. And that's a, kind of how it, it, it happened. Once, once, once we came up with that, so mm-hmm. what was the beauty of it was, with the exception of maybe two tunes, when we got to the studio, 
not that I hadn't handed it out to them a little bit earlier, but mm-hmm. that was all new stuff. We had never played that live ever. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it never, um, um, we had never done any of it. It was all brand new and fresh when we went into the studio. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's, that's really how it happened. Very cool. You are currently the, I'm not sure what the official title is, coordinator of the jazz master's program at temple university yes and i wanted to kind of tie that in with a a quote of yours Mm -hmm. well first actually i wanted to see i guess kind of like what what your your goals are for for that position um i went through that program i finished the year before you took over Mm -hmm. so uh, I'm wondering um, maybe like what you've learned in your time since then or what, what your goals are. And also kind of want to tie it into this. There's a, a quote from you from, a, from an interview that I, I dug up. And uh, it really struck me because it's something I'm working on myself. And if, if I may quote you, quote, I think if younger people want this to work, they have to reduce their amount of fear and stop playing like each other. And it's true. Yeah. I don't know where I said that, but that actually almost sounds smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I and and, and and I said that for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not a big social media guy, but I be, again, I've always been taught by my father at an early age, do me. Mm-hmm. I think all of us are many, I won't say all, but a lot of artists can equate with the fact that we feel very alone in the world. Mm-hmm. I've had conversations and pulled people to decide, said, do you feel this way? Did you feel this way in high school? And they're looking at me like, like, how did you know? <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's the way that we think. Yeah. We're doing, but, but the thing about it is we've never come to the, to, to, to the point of embracing that. It's like, oh, we've been given some identity on social media and now we've got people co-signing what we say. Don't think that that makes it great. That just makes, there are people who do that for all kinds of reasons. Maybe you said something that got 100 hits. They want to be a part of that 100, they want to be a part of those 100 likes so that they can be seen. Mm-hmm. Maybe something just happened to them that day, you know, and so what they're feeling is valid. But there's all kinds of reasons why people do what they do. Mm-hmm. But I don't like the high school mentality, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I didn't, I, and many of us are, what I'm so surprised about is that we know what it's like to be ostracized or have people tease us because we were different or because we were more mature or whatever the situation was. We didn't want to embrace what was going on at the time in, in school amongst our peers. So, so for us to then say, okay, this is what we do. That's why I don't like this is what we do. There is no we. Never has been a we. If you're we, you're behind. Mm-hmm. No disrespect to anybody that's doing whatever. Do what you want to do. But if it's a we, you're behind. The me is in the front. That's the leader. And if you're in a, if you were the leader, to lead means to be in front of everyone else, which means you are alone. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. This is unfor- this part is unrefutable. You might be able to argue everything else I said today, <laughs> but that part is unrefutable. The person in the lead is the person that's ahead, mm-hmm. right? And we should all strive to do that. You know what I mean? So what does that mean? That means when you have Critics say, man, what you're doing is old. You know, you shouldn't play bebop. Play bebop if you want to play bebop. You don't know what that's going to be. 
You're not Charlie Parker. You already invented it. You could change it into something else. You could come up with some epiphany. But if you decide to remove yourself from something because someone says don't do it, you know, mm -hmm. that wasn't your decision. You know, my thing is you have to do you. You have to figure out who you are and work towards that. But all of this, all of this, the idea of just hearing so many people play like, like, okay, let me put these symmetrical patterns together and play these. And everybody goes, woo. Just the idea of hearing so many bootlegs where people go, woo, after someone plays something, I was like, man, this is, do we understand how much of a parody is happening out here? You know what I mean? And, and, and there, you know, we have, we have so many, you know, there's a greater opportunity for people to play because of the internet. I actually think that that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. My thing is, we have to kind of deal with ourselves like wine. Don't try to sell it until it actually is intoxicating. And I think there's a lot of impatience. And as a result of that, you get what you get. You know? You don't have to be an innovator. What you have to be is an artist. So that should still be the goal. Artist is a frivolous, the idea of artist is used in every genre and it's a very frivolously used term. And I think some people may genuinely be confused. Some, I think some people haven't really thought about it because maybe they haven't really sat down and thought about the power of words. But for me, that's why I made that, that's why I made that statement because there's a certain sort of, I, what I saw was a, a high school mentality that I didn't appreciate when I was in high school. And just, so that's where the fear comes from because those people that would tease you, they had fear. They saw something in you that was powerful and that's why they teased you. Uh, uh, it wasn't because your shoes looked funny. You know what I mean? It was because there was something about you that they knew was special and they wanted to lower it as quickly as they could possibly lower it. And so, um, it takes a really strong person to want to be alone. That's a very, you know, to be a leader, because that's a very lonely place. You know, it's a lonely place. So that's what that's about. Thank you very much for, for your wisdom and hanging out with yeah, me, man. man it's I my pleasure. really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, man. Really, really my pleasure. I'm happy to do it, and thank you for being like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through sonic space at my website, nicholaskrolak.com, or on Instagram at nicholas underscore Krolak. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Thanks again for listening, everybody. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment.